when our family was young, we didn't go to the pool a whole lot because my mom really wasn't a, a swimmer. Um, the pools were pretty far away from us because we lived in a very rural area. We didn't have an HOA we were a part of. My parents, at that time, we, we weren't wealthy. We didn't have a whole lot of extra money to spend on, on joining a, a pool anywhere. And so when people would invite us to their homes for a cookout or a pool party, we were always pretty excited, at least my brothers and I were. We got invited to this pool party. We show up there, and if you have kids, you know how this is. You get to the pool party, and what do we do as kids, or what do your kids do? They go straight to the pool, right? So we ran, jumped in the pool. We were ready to play. We didn't care about food. We didn't care about anything else. We just wanted to have a good time. Well, we're there, and I could swim, and so all the kids that were older who could swim, they were in the deep end, and we were playing sharks and minnows. All the kids who could not swim, which were my two younger brothers, basically, they were in the shallow end playing who cares because they're somewhere else, and I'm having a good time. I've talked about my brother Jason before. He's a middle brother. He's an adventurous type spirit. And so uh, he decides about halfway through the pool party, he's like, I wonder what's so cool about the deep end. And so he begins to wade over. He wades over to the rope that's there. He goes underneath the rope. But as he does that, he holds on to the rope and starts leaning into the deep end. And then he kind of lets that one arm go and starts to lean a little bit further. Well, if you're familiar with pools, especially back in the day, there's a pretty steep slope that was there. And so as soon as he started to lean in, his foot slipped. He let go of the rope and tried to save himself, but he couldn't. Now, I'm not paying attention because I don't care about him, all right? I mean, that's at that age where you just don't care about your, your siblings. So he's trying to swim his way up, but he can't swim, and so he begins to sink to the bottom of the pool. I happened to look up, and my dad, who's fully clothed, not to swim at all, He's got his wallet, his keys, everything in his pockets. I mean, he's pretty much ready to go home. And so we're sitting there, and all of a sudden I look over, and my dad takes like these two big leaps, and he jumps into the pool. I'm like, my dad's going crazy. What is he doing? <laughs> he goes in empty-handed. He comes out with my brother under his arm and puts him on the side of the pool deck, and right in that moment saves his life. I was talking to my brother about that story this week, just trying to make sure I got all the details right, and he said, well... Do you know why I almost drowned? I was like, you're dumb? He's like, no, 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 no. He, he said, the reason I almost drowned is because when we went to the pool party, I had my dinosaur floaty on. And he said, right before we walked in, he said, you shoved me into this thorn bush, popped my dinosaur floaty, and I would have had it on in the deep end, and I would have been fine. So it's your fault I almost died. I'm pretty sure that was fabricated, honestly. First part's true. I don't know about the second part. It's, it's quite possible. The reason I tell you that story is that my dad jumped in and saved my brother's life in that moment. I think for you and I, sometimes we need people to jump into our lives to save us. Today we continue this series called Ruth Revealed. We're looking at the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. It's four chapters. We're spending four weeks on this book, looking at a chapter every single week. If you were not here with us last week, let me give you a real quick little recap uh, Ruth is known to be a love story, a love story of, of a man and a woman, a love story of God for humanity. But as the story began, we, we find that we have Naomi and Elimelech, and they ask themselves this question when this famine hits where they lived. What's best for our family? And so they decide to move from Bethlehem to Moab where there was food. So they get there. They've got two sons. These two sons marry Moabite women. They're Hebrews. They marry women that aren't a part of, of their lineage, part of their heritage. And while they're there, over the course of 10 years, Elimelech dies, the two sons die. We find Naomi, who, whose name means pleasant and sweet. 
And last week we said, she even says, I am bitter, I'm angry at God. Look what God has caused in our life. So there was a lot of blame going towards God, a lot of anger in last week's conversation, discussion that we had. But as we ended last week, I said, but look at that last little piece there. There's hope for the future. And today we're going to talk about what that hope looks like. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is your gift from us to you. We'll put it up here on the screen. You follow along on your Journey Church app. Take notes there and also on your program this morning. You can take notes there. But here is what we see in Ruth chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. There was a Mosaic law that was put in place to take care of needy families, under-resourced families, sort of a, a welfare program, if you will. It was called gleaning. And so there were two main rules behind this law. If you owned a field full of grain, as your people, your harvesters were picking up the grain, if they dropped any of the grain, you couldn't pick it back up and put it in your bundle. You had to leave it there. And so you would have the men, they would go through, they would cut down the grain, the women would come behind, they would pick up the grain, they would bundle it up. But if the ladies dropped anything, the people behind them, these were the gleaners, these were, the again, the under-resourced families, they could pick up whatever stalks were left. So that was one part of the gleaning program. Another part was the, the owners of these fields had to leave the edges of their field alone. And again, people could come through. They were under-resourced. They could cut down those stalks. They could put them in their own sheaves. And that would be how they would take care of themselves. That was interesting in that culture because you would think when times were tough that you would be able to keep more of the field for yourself. But, but actually the Mosaic Law said if times are really tough, you got to leave more of the field for those in need. And so there's this gleaning process, this gleaning plan that is in place. Ruth gets there with Naomi to Bethlehem. They're just trying to survive. All they want to do is just eat. And so Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to go glean off of someone's field so that we can have food. She chooses this field. It's owned by a man named Boaz, which, as we will find a little bit later, is connected to Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband before he passed away. She chooses this field to do the gleaning at. And then as we, we see this here, at the very beginning, we get a description of Boaz. It says, a man of standing. That phrase in the Hebrew really means he's, he's a hard worker. He's smart. He's a respected businessman. Even some people say it means warrior. So as we look at Boaz, as we get this little bit of information from him, he's successful. He's a man of character. He's full of, uh, full of integrity. And yet Ruth has no idea that he's connected to her family. Again, as we talked about last week, is this luck or is this God? Look at verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Boaz shows up at the work site. He's on his two-hump camel because he can afford more than a one-hump camel, right? So he gets there, and he jumps off, or whatever he comes in. He jumps off, and he's like, hey, how are things going? Are, are we meeting our quota today? How, is everybody working hard? Do I need to fire anybody? No, that's not what he says, is it? He's like, the Lord be with you. And what's the response from the employees, the people that are working the fields? You're terrible. You're the worst boss ever. He's here. You know how it is in your office? It's not the answer either. What do they say? The Lord bless you. Can you imagine being at your workspace tomorrow in your little tiny cubicle and you're doing your work? Boss comes in late because bosses always come in late, right? They always have something else to do. They come in late. And as soon as your boss walks in, he says, hey, the Lord be with you. And everybody jumps up from their cubicle and everybody says, the Lord bless you. And everybody gets together and holds hand in a prayer circle and you sing Kumbaya for the next 45 minutes, right? That would be weird, wouldn't it? It'd be strange. We don't even do that in a church office, all right? But that's what we see here. They, they have this, this respect for who Boaz is. I mean, Boaz is a good man. But he's also a keen businessman. He, he looks out in the field and he notices something's not quite right. There's somebody new out there, and he sees her. He sees Ruth. But not only does he see Ruth, he hears from the overseer, and I'm sure as he's watching, he's like, wow, she's, she's a really hard worker. And kind of based on the rest of the story, there's probably this moment he looks at her and like, hey, she's actually kind of attractive too. And so he's gathering all this information because he's a keen businessman. And here's what he sees in Ruth. She's dirty. She's muddy. I mean, she's been working all day. She's, she's sweaty. She's wearing a, a peasant's dress, and, and she has no makeup on. Her hair's probably not done. I mean, everything you can imagine, she is a mess. Probably stalks attached to all pieces of her body because she's been working so hard. Every time I read this part of the Ruth story, it reminds me of uh, my job growing up. I basically had one job growing up, and it was working for a landscaper in our church. Uh, the guy in our church had a small landscaping company, so every summer, that's what I did. Even when I had time off during the school year, I would work with him. And there was always this one job that I absolutely hated, and I hated it with a passion. It was usually one day a year that we would do this. It was always, always the hottest day of the year we would do this. And I grew up in North Carolina, and if you've lived in North Carolina before, you have the temperature and then you have the humidity, right? So it's like 100 degrees plus 150% of humidity above that, and so after a long, hard day, we were sweaty and nasty anyway, and our, our boss would come up, and it was always the hottest part of the day, on the hottest day of the year. He would say, hey, we've got one more job to do. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to go bell hay. Any of you ever belled hay before? It is the worst job, I think, out there. Thankfully, somebody had already taken care of most of it and put the hay there. We'd have to drive the truck, and whoever was lucky enough, we were always fighting to see who could get in the truck, because you know why? We'd get in and turn the air conditioner on while everybody else sweated outside. And so somebody would drive the truck, and the rest of us would take those bells of hay, and we'd throw them in the back of the truck. And then when we got done there, you weren't done, right? You had to go take it to the barn. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a barn at the top level on the hard, hottest part of the day, on the hottest day of the year. It's like 250 degrees in there. Literally, people are melting. We're like, hey, he was here a second ago, now we can't find him. It's just so hot up here. So you're throwing that, hell, that, that bales of hay up in, in the back of that truck, and then you're throwing it into the barn. Like, I can't wait till this day is over with. And you finish. Here's all you want to do. 
just spray me down. Just, just get all this stuff because you're sweaty and nasty and muddy. And then you got stalks all over you. And it's in places you're like, how to get there? I don't even understand that. And it's just a nasty. You just want to go jump in a pond and just rest. You don't even care if there's alligator snakes. You just want this stuff off of you. Every time I read this part, that's what I think about. She's nasty. She's messy. She's sweaty. She's got these stalks all over her. And yet Boaz notices something about Ruth. What else we find is that everybody knows her story. They know where she was, where she came from, what she's been doing. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. She's alone, except with Naomi. I mean, everything that you could think about her, she's got every strike that you can imagine. But then here's what happens in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Again, we we look at this part of the scripture and we, we know that Boaz is a strong businessman, but he's also a good man. He says, I'm going to protect you. Gleaning could be actually dangerous work, especially for a young, unmarried, foreign woman. It could be very dangerous work. And he said, I've told my men not to, to lay a hand on you. I want to do everything I can to protect you. And what do we find here? She bows down to him and says, thank you. Showing this respect for Boaz. Look at verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Uh, Boaz, again, he, he knows her, her story. He, he gets more information and, and he sees what, Na- what, what Ruth is doing. She is trying to do everything she can to survive. And she's given up everything. She had a chance to go back to her homeland, to her family. She had a chance to go back to her gods, but she chose to cling to Naomi and to cling to her family and to cling to her God. What do we see right here? I think Boaz sees in her. This is a woman who has a lot of character. She might have been attractive to him. She she might have been a hard worker, but he sees more than that. He sees something deep inside her. He he sees this this character that Ruth has. And character is important. If I can kind of take a side note here for a second. Um, I'm going to speak to all of you who are single and looking in the future to potentially be married. You know, ladies, if you're single and that's what you're looking for in the future, you already know this. Beauty is only skin deep, right? What should impress a man is your character. And guys, if you're single and you're looking for that in the future, again, you know beauty is only skin deep. What you should be looking for, guys, is someone who's a woman who, who's full of character. But, but I'll say this to the gentleman too. Gentlemen, you need to be a man full of character yourself. We look at the story, and I believe that's really what Boaz saw in Ruth. Sure, she, she may, have, may have been attractive to him, but there was more there. There was something about her character 
that I think attracted Boaz to Ruth. She's loyal to Naomi. She's loyal to Naomi's family. She's loyal to Naomi's God. And she has no obligation to any of them. There's something else there in her, and I think it's her character. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Boaz does some abnormal things here. First, he invites her over to come eat where he's eating. This would have been very much against the culture. Um, One, because she was a female. Secondly, because she was a foreign female and a widowed female. And yet he says, hey, come over here. Eat with me. It was actually a sign of respect that Boaz had for Ruth. But not only that, he said, here's what I told my guys to do. Leave stalks for her. Leave sheaves for her. He has given her not the leftovers. He's saying, hey, let's give Ruth the best that we have. And again, I think it goes back to he's impressed with her character. And for that, he wants to do everything he can to not only protect her, but to help her. Look at verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought, excuse me, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Ruth goes home, sees Naomi, and she's like, whoa. What happened? Where'd you get all this? And she began to tell her the story of Boaz and how generous Boaz was with Ruth. Ruth. Now, think about this. Ruth goes there. She doesn't go there to be noticed, does she? She's going there to survive. She's going there to work as hard as she can to take care of her and Naomi. But when she gets there, Boaz sees something different in her, and he's generous to her. He does more than he should for her. And at the end of the day, she brings home 30 pounds of barley and wheat as we find at the end of this chapter he says stay with me through the harvest this would have been about from april to june at the end of the harvest if she kept bringing that amount home she would have had enough food to feed them for years there would be enough there for her to her naomi to sell it to make a really nice income i mean he truly is taking care of ruth and naomi but then there's this key verse in chapter 2 verse 20 The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. There's a lot going on in this verse. And I want to focus on two of the words that we find here. That first word is actually that last word, that, that compound word of guardian redeemers. Naomi calls Boaz, this guardian redeemer. Guardian redeemers in that culture, they were really a cog to a family. They're keeping it uh, intact, keeping it surviving, this extended family. And they had some pretty big responsibilities. A guardian redeemer's part of their role was to buy back family members when they had sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't pay their debt. 
In those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, you would sell yourself into slavery to the person you owed that money to, that debt to. And so the guardian redeemer could come in. It's like, hey, I'm going to pay that debt. I'm going to bring that, that, that family member back to the fold. Uh, they could also go out and buy land from a deceased member. So if a member passed away and, again, there was a debt there, they could pay for that debt and they could bring that land back into the family. If a family member had been murdered, part of their job was to go out and find out who murdered that individual. This is why some people think Boaz was also a warrior. So you could go out and you could find that person because of what they had done to your family. A guardian redeemer could bring in uh, kids if the parents passed away. You could also marry his sister-in-law if his brother passes away. I mean, this is a pretty big deal to be a guardian redeemer. Boaz, in our story, is a guardian redeemer to this family. In truth, he's a savior to this family, to Naomi and Ruth's family. Ruth chooses his field to work in. Is that luck? Is that God? This past Wednesday, I was looking at the Powerball numbers. Not because I play. I played about 25 years ago, and you can see how well I did playing. But, um, but I saw Wednesday, and I don't know if anybody won, but $233 million was the jackpot for Powerball on Wednesday. And then I looked to see, what are the chances of winning? So you're like, yeah, maybe like one in 100. It's like one in 292 million. That's luck, right? That's luck. This isn't luck here. The Hebrews didn't believe in luck. They believed in God. And they believed that God had a hand in everything that happened. Ruth was in the right place, the right field, at the right time, with the right owner. Why? Because God was involved with making that happen. That God was involved in the circumstances of the life of Naomi and Ruth. Last week we said our circumstances, they drive our decisions. That you and I will make decisions like what's best for our family and we'll, we'll follow through with whatever our decision is, even if it's bad, but then we'll blame God. We saw that happen with Naomi. She said, hey, God made this happen in our life, but if you look back at her life, no, 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 Naomi, you and your husband made this decision to move from Bethlehem to Moab. What does God do? God jumps in and saves them. God saves Naomi and Ruth. Again, that's not luck, that's God. And Boaz is this guardian redeemer for their family. But there's another word here that, um, that Naomi uses. She says kindness in my translation. Maybe it's loving kindness in yours. And it's a Hebrew word, chesed. All right, can you say that? Let me hear it, chesed. Yeah, it's like, don't go too much because you might spill a little something on the person in front of his head. And we don't want that to happen, all right? But chesed. Again, it's this Hebrew word. We find it about 243 times in the Old Testament. And it, every time we find it, it really defines the character of God. But here's what's so hard about this word. There's not really a definition in English that we can use that fits. Because it, it means kindness. It means loving kindness. It means faithfulness. It means mercy. I mean, you could just keep adding on and on to this word because it's, it's such a powerful word for the Hebrew people. In fact, it was core to their ethical beliefs, their virtues, who they were. About 1,800 years ago, one of the rabbis, Rabbi Simle, counted up all the laws in the Torah, and he said there are 613 laws in the Torah. That's where we get that number from. But here's what he said about the Torah. He says the Torah begins and ends with chesed. It begins and ends with chesed. That means God is everything. 
Like you, you can't even put a definition around it, a number to it. God is everything. Everything about God is here. And that word means that. It's more than, than anything that can be put inside a fence or more than anything that can be put inside any kind of, of boundary. Chesed. We look in our story in Ruth 1, we find Naomi. For her, God has no chesed toward her, does she? Does he? God doesn't have anything for Naomi. And in fact, Naomi says, these are dark days. God is against me. But here in Ruth 2, we find something very different, don't we? Here in Ruth 2, we see that, that there's this chesed there. And, and Naomi says, hey, God, God hasn't forgotten us. And in fact, God loves us. And God is taking care of us. And God is being generous to us. In Ruth 1, Naomi forgot about God. But God never forgot about Naomi. And he gave her and showed her this chesed in her life for her and for Ruth. That God is in the midst of those circumstances of their lives and ours. Chesed really is going beyond the boundaries. And it's trying to think through what's a good way to define it for us. Something that we can really hold on to. And I think the, the best phrase I can come up with is love beyond reason. Chesed really is this love beyond reason. Here we are today. It's Mother's Day. I, I don't know if there's a group of people who get this more than moms do. They understand love beyond reason. Now, listen to me. I know some of you, you have terrible relationships with your, your mother. And you struggle with that. And a day like today may be tough for you. I, I get that. But some of us grew up in homes where this love beyond reason was, man, it was, it was there all the time. We saw this in our mom constantly, that our mom did everything for us, that our moms, they would eat last to take care of, of us. That, that maybe for, for you, and I know in my home, my mom would take care of our needs before she would ever take care of her needs. She was always the first one up, the last one to go to bed. For, for many of us, our moms, if we ever got sick, guess who was there taking care of? It was mom. If we got hurt, guess who was there? Mom's taking care of us. Uh, for some of us, maybe your mom was the one that helped you every single time you were hungover or strung out. Your mom was there. Why? Because she loved beyond reason. Moms understand this idea of love beyond reason. When everyone else gave up on you, your mom didn't. Why? Moms get this. This love beyond reason. We, we can't understand it. It's this unpredictable, unconditional, never-ending love that our, our moms have for us. Moms understand love beyond reason. And we see that in our story. Ruth loves beyond reason. She has no obligation to Naomi, but she says, I'm going to stick with you. I'm not going anywhere. Your people are my people. Your God, my God. Love beyond reason. Boaz. Goes against the grain. He says, Ruth, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be generous to you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you everything that you need so you can take care of yourself and Naomi. Love beyond reason. And God, God jumps into the midst in a moment where it should have been where he said, hey, I'm not going to help you at all because you don't believe in me anymore. You're struggling with me, Naomi. I'm going to teach you a lesson, but God doesn't. God says, no, I'm going to love you beyond reason. This idea of hesed is all about loving beyond reason. And we see this throughout this chapter in Ruth chapter 2. At the very end of the chapter, we find that Naomi says, hey, stay in Boaz's field. Don't leave it. Don't leave. Stay there. 
as we look at Ruth chapter 2, what can we glean? Yeah, that, that's good, right? Yeah. What can we, yeah, no, sorry, it's terrible. What can we glean from this chapter for our own lives? Well, I love to be able to ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first question is, how are we living out a love beyond reason? How, how are you and I, how, how are we living out this idea of love beyond reason? As a follower of Jesus, it should be the number one thing in our life, that we should be the kind of people who love beyond reason. What I find many times, and we talked about this in our Burn series, many times for Christians, those that are followers of Jesus, we're some of the worst at that. We set limits. I'll love you if, I'll love you when, I'll love you until. That's not love beyond reason. That's a love with boundaries. We're called to love beyond reason, to love with this chesed. That's why I love wedding vows. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness or in health, to death do us part. That's love beyond reason. Are you and I, are we living a life that says, I love beyond reason, a love that doesn't make sense? But then the other question we have to ask is, if we can love beyond reason, whose life might we save? Whose life might we save? If you're a parent, and no matter how much hurt or pain your kids had brought to you, no matter how angry you were in the moment, if your kid's in that water and they're drowning like my brother was, my guess is every single one of us that are parents, we're going to jump in and save that child. And then maybe you're not a parent, but you see a child drowning. You see a child in pain or hurt. You know what? My guess is every single one of us would jump in to save that child. But what are we willing to do? How much love beyond reason are we willing to show when it comes to bringing people to know who Jesus is in our lives? Well, we show that by loving beyond reason. And I think that's the power behind who Jesus is. I think that's why so many people are transformed by Jesus because Jesus loved beyond reason. Think about it. People voted him to be on the cross. And then they, they jeered him. They tortured him. They yelled at him. They cursed at him. They did everything you can imagine to him. And then he gets up on the cross, and what does he do? Man, you all, you're going to have a really bad day later on in the day because of what you're doing. Is that what happens? No. He feels this pain because of what he sees. And you know what he says? I'm going to love you beyond reason. This doesn't even make sense to you. I, I know, but I'm going to love you. And I think we see that in our own lives, that, that, that Jesus loves us no matter who we are, no matter that we're an outsider because of our past, and no matter because of the things that are happening in our lives presently. Jesus says, I love you beyond reason. The world says, I should just push you to the side, but not me. I love you beyond reason. I believe that's why so many people are transformed by the story of Jesus. Jesus loves beyond reason. But then Jesus, of course, is our guardian redeemer, too. Jesus is our Savior. We're not a whole lot different than Ruth. I mean, we're foreigners. We're outsiders. We feel unlovable. We feel dirty. We, we're trying to survive. We're far from God. We're trying to figure out God in, in our lives. You know what Jesus does? No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter where we are, Jesus jumps in and saves us. Jesus is our guardian redeemer. He is our Savior and he shows that by loving us beyond reason. As we head into our communion time this morning, I want to read this passage to you. Some of you may be familiar with it. John 10, 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here's the deal. You and I, 
We can't save the world. But God can. But what you and I can do, we can love beyond reason. And you know what God can do with that? God can then take that and save the world around us through Jesus. But it begins with you and I loving beyond reason like we find in Ruth 2 today. What's our next step? I think our next step today is pretty simple. What is the one thing that you and I can change in our life today that we can begin to love beyond reason? Right now. Not waiting a year from now or a month from now or a week from now, but today. What is that one thing that you and I can do in our life to begin to love beyond reason? Because Jesus, God, will use that to transform our world and to transform us.